The If Then podcast is brought to you by If Then Ventures, a community of attorneys, regulatory professionals, and all-around builders who help founders and startups make legal strategy a competitive advantage. It should go without saying, but let it be said, absolutely nothing in today's conversation is legal, financial, or any other type of advice. However, the If Then community is great at connecting founders and startups with the right attorney, policy professional, or strategic advisor for their needs. If you're interested in joining or partnering with the If Then community, send me an email at david at ifthen.vc. Okay, that's out of the way. Let's get to the show. Yes! Welcome to another episode of the If Then podcast. And it is with truly great pleasure that I am welcoming to the show the general counsel, newly appointed of Maple Finance, uh, former partner at King & Spalding in the Special Matters and Government Investigations Group, former King & Spalding lifer turned DeFi DGen. Let's welcome the show, Catherine Kirkpatrick, boss. Do you go with all three? Thank you so much. <laughs> no, yes and no, informally, because boss is an epic married name, but you know, I never legally changed it, which is a missed opportunity if there ever was one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, bosses, bosses, it's a good nickname name for sure. Uh, so, you, you know, people have done worse on the married names, but you're, you're getting the best of both worlds because you didn't actually have to do anything, but you can kind of swim as, as you so choose. I was too lazy to go to the social security <laughs> office and DMV. That just sounds horrible. So, but you may refer to me as Mrs. Boss. Or Mrs. Boss. Boss. <laughs> <laughs> I think someone uses that, but I don't know. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe not. Um, Mrs. Boss, <laughs> I would love to dive into your legal career because I think it, it is very interesting. And, and, and I may be biased because in many ways it's somewhat similar to mine, but in many other ways, it's much, much different. And I think you get to be our kind of representative defender of big law because you are the first guest that I have had on that, that stuck it out through to partnership. And not only did you do that, but you did it with one firm all the way through from summer associates to partner. So I really want to dig into that, but let's start with kind of your background, becoming a lawyer. Um, I'd love to know where you're from, where you grew up, and how that led you to law school in particular. Like, what were your interests you think that took you that way? Sure. So I grew up in Cincinnati and Detroit. And I actually have a crazy story. I ended up at USC undergrad. And the only reason I ended up there is I applied early decision to Northwestern and I didn't get in. And I was apoplectic. So I wrote an angry and indignant letter to the Daily Northwestern. <laughs> um, which was published. And I was a high school student, you know, I was 17 and went the, uh, God, 2000 year, 2001 version of viral, uh, all wow. over the, the baby internet. And I got all of these introductions from journalism professors and journalists all over the country, including the head of USC's journalism school who said, come here, I'll fly you out. He finagled me a generous scholarship, which convinced my Cincinnati parents to let their 18 year old go to South Central LA for undergrad. And I, I desperately wanted to be a print journalist, like a, a newspaper reporter. And I, I think that was appealing to me for many of the same reasons I loved my ultimate practice, investigation, um, intellectual stimulation. 
But along the way, I became disenchanted with print journalism and journalism. Uh, so went straight through from undergrad to law school and ended up at Notre Dame for law school and then practicing in New York for the first 10 years. Wow, that that is an amazing story. You, you, going viral in 2001, it's like you and the dancing baby are the two viral things. And I feel like you were immediately destined to be a lawyer the second you put pen to paper on that on that letter. So um, kudos to you. No, no uh, kind of liberal arts meandering. What do I do next? Uh, like some people on this podcast, but you had a uh, a you you had it. So I love that. I love that. When you graduate from law school, did you know the type of law that you wanted to practice? Yes, because I summered with King and Spalding, but the summer after my first year, I split the summer with a Cincinnati firm kind of doing everything and with the Hamilton County public defender in felonies in Cincinnati. And I hated every minute of being with the PD's office. I just couldn't take it. I mean, I have so much respect for public defenders, but I spent most of my summer, you know, defending uh, someone, an alleged rapist and someone who had allegedly killed a baby. And I just couldn't take it. You know, our work was to plead these guys out and it, I was struggling. So it's funny that I turned around and ended up in criminal law, white collar defense. Right. Uh, but I rotated through a number of practice groups at King and Spalding. It was the first time white collar defense and investigations really I, I even knew it was on the radar. I even knew it existed in big law. That was all new to me. And I loved it. I found it fascinating. I found it intellectually stimulating. I loved the puzzle aspect of it and unpacked it. So I was like signed, sealed, delivered. I didn't want to do anything else after I rotated through that practice group. What was there kind of like a first matter that grabbed you when you, when you were there that really showed you what this practice was like? It was an insane matter, actually. We were representing a video game developer who was under investigation because, as some people might be aware, video games have ratings like PG or, you know, R or whatever the ratings are. This was a long. I think that's ago. like a like a Tipper Gore uh, follow on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So this video game had naked ladies as part of the game. I'm sorry, scantily clad ladies. <laughs> um, and so the video game was given one rating, but the developer basically built in a secret game within a game that nobody was supposed to know about, uh, where the scantily clad ladies uh, got naked and engaged in certain acts. Um, oh. Yes. So wait, surprise, what? You surprise. haven't you haven't named the, you haven't named the game? Like what? What is? I the like game? to keep everything confidential, <laughs> even if it's public. It's part of my practice. We are, we are, everything is a secret. I'm going to be Googling this while you yeah, right? continue talking. <laughs> so surprise, someone, you know, found the game within a game and everyone involved in the game was then subject to investigation for violating this rating, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. So I was working on this matter and I was just stunned. I said, this is awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is part of the law, you know, and I rotated through finance, through corporate, IP, business litigation, a lot of really fascinating aspects of that, but kind of the hands-on approach, the dealing with all these different personalities and dealing with clients in a highly sensitive, almost emotional context was really appealing to me. You know, these people, if you need someone like me, someone in my former practice, you're usually not in a good place. 
Yeah. Uh, you, you absolutely need legal counsel under those circumstances. So you really have the unique ability to bond with your client and to help them through a really difficult period of time and to advocate in a number of really creative ways. Yeah. One of my, I did a lot of investigations in my six years at Latham and one of my early cases was a white collar case and our client was already in prison for some tax shenanigans that I kind of struggled to understand um, as a first year. What really struck me about those types of cases just in general was I had a bunch of friends like down the hall on some giant antitrust case and I was gonna do so much more than they were. Small team investigation, one high net worth individual client. Um, I felt like the skills that I could develop were pretty significant and also just being that close to it. And you talk about counseling clients and, and, and being that close to it. Was that something that you were able to do really early on? That was one of the most appealing things. Um, the things that I like the most are being a junior associate, to be honest. Uh, when I joined King and Spaulding, our special matters and investigations team was relatively small, at least compared to what it is now, particularly in the New York office. Very, very small team. So that often meant our matters were thinly staffed or we were working cross office. It was very hands-on. I wasn't just sitting around doing doc review. And, you know, if you prove that you had the ability to take on this level of responsibility, my mentors, they were happy to, you know, give you that level of responsibility. So I love that because I'm all about trial by fire. I think it's the best way to learn. And it's, it was still big law. You still had someone checking your work. You know? <laughs> so it's not like you were going at it alone, but I learned a lot and I was really engaged and that made me feel like, you know, I wanted to stick around. In an investigation, you generally have to develop certain types of skills that are different from say, brief writing. Usually there's some writing component that comes up at some point, but it's obviously it's investigation. You have to do much more or fact finding in a different way, a lot more interviews and things like that. How did you, or how are you able to develop the skills needed to really conduct a strong investigation? That's a great question. I think certain aspects of my personality helped. I'm brutally efficient. And I have this philosophy that some lawyers are 99 percenters and some lawyers are 100 percenters. And if you're a 99 percenter, you are very, very efficient. You can get through a lot and you can triage really well. If you're a 100 percenter, your work product is pristine. Um, and you want a 100 percenter if you're working on like a federal or appellate brief, right? It needs to be the creme de la creme of work product. But when you're working on an interview outline and it's one of 59 interviews that you need to conduct in four days, you need a 99 percenter. End of story. Uh, so I was really able to triage. And, you know, as I became more senior in the firm, I developed really good project management skills and, and manage managing people in general, in part because of the triage philosophy, the efficiency and I think the ability to read a situation and juggle resources accordingly. Yeah, I love that. I feel like you may be being generous for the 99%, at least like when it came to some of the, uh, <laughs> the, the things I was doing. But, you know, you get in there, you interview someone, you, you ask them some questions and you try to get at 
the heart of the matter. Definitely a, a big fan. Was there anything that you kind of learned about yourself along the way or found about yourself as as you were crafting these skills? Like I, I bet I bet you knew the like efficiency part already. Did you did you learn anything new as you were developing this over your career? Uh, girl, I'm laughing because one of my partners once said that I was the best with the weirdest clients. <laughs> um, I love that. So he, he would joke that when I was an associate, he would make sure that he would put me on all the matters with the, the most eccentric clients for better or for worse. Uh, I think he was right. I, I think I'm good at managing difficult personalities. It's one of the reasons why I was not intimidated about joining a startup. I had, I, you know, I have dealt with so many entrepreneurs and you know, kind of crazy C-suite individuals over the years, and I'm not daunted by it. And if anything, I think that I have skills that enable me to bond with those people and gain their trust. Uh, and that, you know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm number one in terms of social IQ, but I think there is something that can be done when you're dealing with a difficult personality going through a difficult time and how to facilitate the growth of that relationship. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's really interesting. And I think that's a, that's a good thing to learn anything you, anytime you can get that sort of insight, even if someone is delivering it in, in, <laughs> in that kind of way is, is pretty helpful. I, I would love to, I'd love to get from you, like, I don't know, high level, typical, how does a case come to you, Catherine Kirkpatrick, the investigator, and how does that end up going from beginning to end? Like what happens from a technical perspective? Yep. So one of the fun parts about my practice, people consider it kind of niche, but it's actually pretty broad. Like you do the traditional investigations where most of our work representation of entities, uh, either domestic or overseas in U.S. government investigations. So the classic DOJ sends a subpoena, right? Also just corporate compliance, sometimes proactive, uh, public company preparedness, regulatory inquiries, so non-criminal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously I give you that caveat, they're all different. But uh, probably the most common example is you do have a client that has a subpoena and the client will vary depending on sophistication. You know, when we're dealing with banks, they get subpoenas all the time. So they're unconcerned. Oh, help me facilitate the response to this in an efficient manner. But if it's a little bit higher temperature, then you, know, you really have to go through what are somewhat classic steps of an investigation. And anybody who's done one, sometimes you could say you could do them all, but they all vary. Now, in, in complexity, in sensitivity, in scale, you know, I've definitely over the course of my career been involved in truly, you know, existential investigations. Like this could be the end of a significant entity based mm-hmm. on the outcome of this investigation. Uh, no matter what the case, there's certain basics you need to check off. Like you get the subpoena, you assess the situation, you lock down document preservation. You do the overview of who you need to speak to and what you need to gather to not only be potentially responsive to a subpoena, but again, sometimes this is proactive or pre-subpoena. The company knows they have an issue. You need to go in and do the internal investigation before you even know what you're going to do. You know, are you going to disclose? Are you going to ha- get a subpoena, et cetera? 
You mm -hmm. want to do whatever you can to assess the true state of play. Like, does the entity have real potential issues here? Right. Or, you know, is this a, is this a misinterpretation by the government or by a would-be whistleblower that just doesn't understand the context? I've, I've seen it all. So you have to get a sense of that landscape first and foremost. Do you generally find when you're in there, you've done this planning, you head to the client, maybe you're heading into their office to start uh, pulling documentation, to start interviewing people. Do you find the clients generally cooperative? For the most part, yes. If, you know, I hate to state a gross generalization, but if individuals are not cooperative, a lot of times that means something up, something's up. Um, they have something to hide. Uh, that is the most common thing I've seen when someone is not cooperative. There's a big difference between cooperative and not thrilled to see you. You know, occasionally you'll <laughs> get people that are very unhappy to see you grumbling about the cooperation. It's a huge distraction to the business. You know, you're paying thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars for counsel and all of this distracts from money-making. So there's a big difference between grumbling about, you know, having to do this and, you know, not being cooperative or obstructing or the classic, I don't recall, I don't remember. Right. You know, out of 90 out of 100 questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's a dubious pattern there, you yes. know. <laughs> Since we're making early 2000s references, I believe they call that the Alberto Gonzalez. Yes, um, exactly. So in doing these, I, I take it a lot of times you had to travel somewhere, especially doing cross-border investigations. I once got to go to Vietnam for a week to do an investigation for a bank out there, brought like an empty suitcase, uh, had some nice tailoring made. It was, it was, uh, that was like five years worth of, worth of fancy law firm clothing, which was nice. Any, any, any like interesting adventures that had nothing to do with the case? for a place that you traveled? Oh yeah, I was such a road warrior. I was Delta 360 for years, which is their invitation <laughs> only frequent flyer club where they send you like a magnum of nice champagne or a bottle of scotch and they give you a, a Porsche tarmac transfer for connection. Oh wow. <laughs> that was a nice fringe benefit. That's where my leg room was going yes, to, to yes. your Porsche this tarmac. Was, <laughs> this was luckily before kids, but you know, I spent basically two years commuting every other week mm. to Zurich. I spent two years going back and forth repeatedly to Istanbul. I think like 18 times in 2018 when I was flew back when I was 34 weeks pregnant. Wow. <laughs> I was almost detained on the way back because Turkish Air didn't want to let me board because my doctor's note was more than a week old. So that was that was uh, not a great situation. I think I really took advantage of that period in my life. You know, I explored a lot of Turkey. I'm nice. a big skier. And a couple of times my husband flew over, joined me in Zurich. So we were able to ski Gestad and uh, ski Zermatt. Uh, I was obviously working horrible hours. <laughs> and it sounds very sexy. Like law students <laughs> Oh, Zurich. Oh, wow. She's interviewing I, and hitting the slopes. What a, what a life. <laughs> and I'm like, I was really, for the most part, spending most of my time in a windowless conference room in a strip mall <laughs> in suburban Zurich. Not sexy. But 
I think I was able to take advantage of that. If you spend enough time overseas and enough time traveling, you can get away for a day trip. You need to yep. get away for a day trip. You need to take a break every once in a while. You can't work 18 hour days for a month, maybe for a week, maybe for two weeks. Then you go skiing. Then you come back to it. Yeah. I'm sure it was very uh, intense generally always, but it, it's it's amazing that you took advantage of that. I, I remember in, in aforementioned trip to Vietnam, I like fell asleep in a bathtub with my phone and dropped my phone in the bathtub, like on like day three of five, which was an unfortunate, an unfortunate occurrence, but yeah, worse things have happened. Oh yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) it doesn't just have to be the country you're in. I mean, I did side trips, I think in one month, uh, during the Turkey days, I went to Cairo for a weekend, met a girlfriend in Paris, went to Prague and went to Munich. Uh, again, a couple of those are day trips, but yeah. when are you going to have the opportunity to be like bopping around the world in that situation? I had so many frequent flyer miles. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You got to, you got to spend that Delta 360 somewhere. Uh, that's amazing. No, that, I mean, that's a uh, great to take advantage of, uh, the situation. Certainly. Um, last couple of questions on investigations. Uh, what do you, what's, what are some tips you have for, those of us who hopefully will never be investigated in our lives, but, you know, may come across situations where such a thing happens. Do you have any operational security tips for us? That's a great question. I mean, a lot of my tips really surround what you need to do to never get a subpoena or an inquiry, (laughs) or I'm like a broken record with loose language with Mm -hmm. obviously now with my own company, but Prior to that, with all of my clients, I was, I would basically tell them, you can't do enough training on this, especially in financial services, when you're dealing with people be chatting or a lot of those mechanisms where people just chat all day. I think this is one area of the law where you take it seriously. You engage outside counsel early and you pay for the best. Mm-hmm. A couple, and you know, that's one of the reasons why we were able to command and why this practice is able to command full freight. Because maybe you can negotiate if you have a nice to have with outside counsel, or maybe you you want to sue a counterparty, but ultimately you say, okay, I'm 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 gonna pass on this suit for the moment. You can't pass on defending any type of regulatory inquiry, particularly criminal. Yeah. And the ability for certain a certain sphere of the private sector to have insight into the process or connections to read the room or a certain comfort level in that world is absolutely essential. So pay for the, pay for the good lawyers is all I'd advise. (laughs) Good, good to know. Uh, Really quick. I want to ask you, as I mentioned before, you're my first law firm partner uh, guest. And we often talk about, going in-house and making in-house moves um, and, you know, finding where you need to be. Um, it does sound like, like you generally enjoyed your big law experience. Um, but did you always know you wanted to make partner the whole time? What, what was your thought process in getting there? Absolutely. Uh, I am. Uh, <laughs> yes. From no. the moment you wrote that letter to the paper, you're oh, like, I just, yeah. <laughs> 2001. No, Look, 
when I started out in big law in New York City, I candidly was not, I did not know I wanted to make partner at a white shoe law firm. I just wanted to make sure I kept all doors open in the longer term. So I said, okay, I work for a big firm in a big city. If I burn out and want to go like work for a firm in Cincinnati, I can do that leaving a big firm in New York City, whereas I can't do that. The, the opposite is much yep. harder. It's a one, one way street. Exactly. But I will tell you, as soon as I got to the firm and started working in this practice, I knew very early on that I wanted to make partner. I actually remember emailing one of my uh, adjunct professors who back in the day headed Sidley's white collar group. And I emailed him and I said, you know, I was probably six months into my tenure at KNS. I emailed him and I was like, John, what do I need to do to make partner? (laughs) (laughs) And he must have laughed. And he wrote back, just like, just do good work. Put your head down and do good work. So I started that, but I I knew I wanted to make partner. I'm a very ambitious person. And I wanted to seize an opportunity that was in front of me. And again, with the open door philosophy, if I made partner in my mind, that would open a lot of doors in the much longer future. Uh, Should I choose to do X, Y, Z, in my opinion, it was easier to do some of those things having made partner in big law. Yeah. Going to the advice of your adjunct professor, put your head down and do good work six months into being a first year. Do you think that held true all the way through? I'm sure that was certainly true for some period of time, but do you think that held true all the way through? Yes. I mean, you have to do great work to be a partner at a law firm. You know, you can't do middling work. You can't do mediocre work. I think that's most important for a junior associate because you have to do great work because you have to develop a reputation for yourself internally before you cultivate your reputation externally. You know, you need to be a very busy young associate to get great opportunities internally. And you develop those, you know, basic skills that are building blocks for more important skills. You need to be able to do the work. You need to be able to think in an analytical way, write well, advocate, look for opportunities to advocate, work well with people, all those building block skills. And then you move on to, can you manage people? Can you manage a project? Can you manage a crisis? How do you work in the trenches? All of those things are important in big law. And then as you become more senior, my partnership trajectory, I felt like it was essential at King and Spalding. And this is, this is definitely true of KNS. You need to have a business plan. You know, mm-hmm. you, you need to be originating matters, or if you're not originating matters, you need to have a very clear path forward as to how you will be an economic driver of work to the firm. It is key. You can't just put your head down and do work. That's not how you get promoted at King and Spalding. How did you cross that chasm from I am a person who does great work that's handed to me to I'm originating matters. I'm executing on a business plan as an associate. A lot of work, a lot of extra work. Um, And, you know, that's something that wasn't my favorite. I don't have any problems with business development. You know, people forget that lawyers, we're salespeople at the end of the day, particularly in the private sector. We are a service industry. And as a young partner, I was spending a lot of my time doing BD, a lot, and a lot of late nights doing BD, you know, business development was key, a lot of cultivating relationships, 
a lot of doing great work for current clients and hoping that if those clients had another issue, which you know is uniquely difficult in investigations, we don't have a ton of like recidivist clients or repeat business. Um, and cultivating, you know, absolutely being relentless in my own personal network. Uh, you know, my husband is senior in financial services, and you better believe I milked his contacts for all they were worth. And <laughs> some people would shy away from that. You know, that's not for everyone. I, I didn't, I didn't have a problem with that. And he was a great facilitator of those introductions in financial services. That was always my passion: the work surrounding financial services, uh, market manipulation, a lot of the work directly relevant to that industry. So that aligned well with my longer term business plan. Well, there you have it. When I incessantly talk about career intentionality, the drive to go make partner and then executing on that and doing that in addition to any other you know thing you might set on. Catherine's a shining example. So very cool. Congratulations. But I think that anyone betting on how long it would have taken us to say the word crypto in this podcast, uh, they would have, they would have, they would have taken the under and they would have lost, but we made it almost 30 minutes. So you now work for a DeFi protocol. Can you tell us your crypto origin story and how you got into crypto in the first place? I love that question. I have to tell you, I have so enjoyed networking with other lawyers in crypto, particularly since my move and everyone loves talking about crypto and it's such a good starting point. <laughs> to a conversation, how do you yes. find your way to crypto? And you know, when I meet my own employees, everyone has such an interesting origin story. I would say much like many other people in this space, intellectually, it appealed to me. Like everyone else, it snuck up on me. What is this Bitcoin? But back in 2017, 2018, I helped the firm form kind of the FinTech blockchain and crypto working group. Because intellectually, I was reading a lot and I started writing a lot about legal aspects of crypto. What's interesting is, you know, you Google something about insider trading, 157 client alerts pop up. If yep. you Google something about crypto or DeFi, chances are nothing pops up. So I realized there was a huge gap, whether it was like a travel rule assessment or the you know, global AML landscape for crypto. And I saw the growth in this space or the potential growth of the space and the corresponding demand for legal services. So I really got more and more into it. And then much of my practice was cross-border investigations before the pandemic, you know, representation of foreign entities in US government investigations. And the issue there is a lot of times there's blocking statutes or data privacy restrictions, which means data can't leave the foreign country, Switzerland, for example, France, many jurisdictions have some iteration of that, which meant that the pandemic really put a damper in my practice. Oh, wow. Cross-border investigations slowed down significantly and the lawyers couldn't get there. The government couldn't get there. So a lot of things were on pause. I decided to pivot. You know, I actually went on maternity leave shortly after the pandemic started. Lovely time to have a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, June 2020. Ouch. Babies and dogs. That's that, yeah, right? that early. Absolutely. <laughs> that early pandemic vibe. Exactly. Double quarantine. Newborn yeah. and pandemic <laughs> quarantine. Yeah. And so when I came back, 
really, we were in the throes of things and cross-border investigations was, were still very anemic. And at that point, I saw a real opportunity to pivot. And I had already been doing a lot of informal engagement, thought leadership on crypto. And I started cultivating a lot of these smaller matters. Mm -hmm. And it actually started not with crypto market participants, with TradFi and not even financial services. For example, a university that wanted to accept donations in Bitcoin and called my firm and said, what do I do about this? And one of my partners knew that I knew what crypto was, called me and I walked them through, you know, the facilitation of a more rigorous AML protocol for these donations. Really a lot of smaller matters. So yeah. it kept me interested. It kept me engaged. It helped me develop, again, a lot of thought leadership. I did a lot of public commentary in the space. And I became more and more intellectually interested and excited about those matters. I really like that. Obviously, a lot of the aspects of crypto markets, in particular, the 2017 ICO boom was well aligned with the practice that you were already doing. But it's really interesting how you saw that, seized it, started doing reading, writing, this extracurricular activities around it, learned more and more, started taking small matters, and all of a sudden, you're the expert. And <laughs> it, there, there's, a, there's a nice progression there of following something interesting and it ultimately working its way into your professional life. I really like that. From the law firm perspective, to touch back on the kind of investigations piece, was there any kind of tactical aspects of doing your practice, doing a white collar practice and investigations practice in the crypto space that differed from what you were used to doing? Yes, I think the biggest thing is, obviously, my practice is very comfortable with responding to SEC subpoenas. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, King and Spalding has some of the creme de la creme of ex-SEC. You know, we have the ex-enforcement uh, director and general counsel of the SEC, one person, Dick Walker. We have the former Northeast Regional Director, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of ex-senior SEC uh, practitioners, so much expertise in the space. So we deal with a lot of SEC inquiries. As some people may be aware, the SEC is looking into crypto these days. <laughs> so I hear. <laughs> Surprise. And what was different about it was honestly the learning curve for some of my partners. You have these partners that are almost on a pedestal and they are brilliant and they have these storied careers, especially me who no shade there. I was in a bit, I, I am in a bit of a different generation being 38 than many of my partners and having to teach them and having to walk them through basically learning another language in mm. the context of crypto was a unique experience for me. Did you ever drop, did you ever drop a not going to make it on a, <laughs> on any, <laughs> on any of them? That's confidential. No. <laughs> no, but I would have to educate them on not just terminology, but platforms, you know, mm -hmm. certain, there are unique aspects of the crypto community and the DeFi community that make information gathering very difficult. Discord, Telegram, there's a whole new level of complexity or having to explain to one of my partners how Uniswap actually worked. Like they yeah. just didn't understand that there wasn't an inter intermediary person facilitating. They just kept saying, <laughs> but who does the transaction? Who does the transaction? So 
this guy uni <laughs> he's in the middle <laughs> mr uni swap yeah <laughs> so the learning curve of a lot of the my fellow practitioners and the external parties who might be tangentially involved and a lot of the process of crypto is really interesting i was doing billable work of course but I was always also constantly giving a Crypto 101 CLE presentation that I did with one or two of my partners to, no joke, the C-suite of public companies. And yep. some of that program addressed things like, what is a wallet? So yeah. I think the fact that they wanted the CLE and that I was giving the CLE constantly before I left the firm is actually great because it felt to me like a bit of a sea change. They were realizing, oh, we're leaving money on the table. But there is a huge, huge learning curve and an information gap that I think the whole crypto DeFi community needs to bridge before yeah. we move forward. Absolutely. So speaking of learning, can you tell us what is Maple Finance? Hey, party people. David here. I'm about to ask Catherine to explain Maple Finance and how it differentiates from other DeFi lending protocols, but I didn't do a great job of making sure we laid the groundwork for how that stuff works. What can I say? I'm still ironing out the kinks as a host. In any case, I thought I'd set the stage with a quick rundown. Protocol lending is an early use case for DeFi. In the traditional world, if you want to get a personal loan, you'd go to a bank and apply for that loan. The bank would review your KYC, or your know your customer details, as well as your financial information, basically assessing your creditworthiness. This would generally be your income and your credit score. If the bank approved you, it would lend you money at a predetermined interest rate. If you default, the bank keeps charging you that interest and will take measures to recoup the funds, like sending the debt to collections agencies. Because the bank lent out that money at a higher interest rate than its cost of capital, would have had to pay the source of its funds. And the source of its funds, by the way, being the deposits that normal retail people put in a bank. The bank gets to make money off of your money. And that's how most lending banks make money. Now, DeFi changes this by removing the intermediary, the bank that's extracting value and replacing it with a protocol, a set of smart contracts that are able to connect lenders and borrowers directly under a predetermined set of rules. So in a lending protocol, the lenders can be people like you and me who deposit ETH into a smart contract. That smart contract gives me back a particular protocol token that automatically accrues interest. You then may or may not be able to stake that token and generate additional yield. Regardless, instead of putting money in a bank and letting that bank earn interest off of lending it, you are now a lender. On the borrowing side, instead of a bank assessing the KYC and the borrower's credit worthiness, the protocol simply asks one thing. Does the borrower have collateral to back up the loan? So for example, if I want to borrow $5,000 in USDC, I may need to put up three ETH as collateral, which is presently worth about $9,000, more than I was borrowing. If I default on that loan, the smart contract will liquidate my collateral to recoup the funds. So we get to Maple. The innovation that Catherine's going to tell us about is that Maple is engaged in under-collateralized lending, just like the bank in the original example. After all, most people are trying to borrow money because they don't have a ton of it lying around. What this means, though, is that without the collateral, the innovation here is that the protocol needs a way to assess the credit worthiness of the borrower in crypto land. The way that Maple does this is by setting up smart contracts to manage the interactions between four distinct parties, lenders, borrowers, delegates, and stakers. 
Lenders deposit money into the protocol, receive a Maple token in exchange. They become stakers by then staking that Maple token. Again, locking it up for some period of time and accruing additional yield. Borrowers are institutions in this case. They're, they might be hedge funds, traders, market makers, exchanges, etc. They're looking for capital to fund their operations. Then you have the pooled delegates. The pooled delegates are essentially underwriting the borrowers. They have their own organizational process for determining the creditworthiness of the institutional borrower. Now, unlike in the previous example, whether you are a borrower or a lender, the Maple Protocol itself is going to perform KYC. So hopefully that is a reasonable enough explanation. But if you'd like to learn more, head to maple.finance and read all about the Maple Protocol or, you know, head to Google and read more about protocol lending or try some out for yourself, not financial advice. In any case, what you should definitely do is get back to this wonderful conversation with Catherine. Yes. Is it Maple or Maple.finance? How do, you, how do you guys verbalize it? Yeah, I call it Maple Finance. And okay. I believe that is the, the technically correct name. Basically, one of the things that attracted me to this position in particular, I was not looking to leave the firm necessarily, but I really believe in Maple Finance's kind of business model. Basically, the whole idea is we want to establish Maple Finance as the dominant institutional capital network for crypto. So what we have here is you have institutions who want to lend out stable coins. And then on the other side is you have crypto native companies who need under collateralized loans for growth. And a lot of DeFi, as you may be aware, is over collateralized lending. So Maple facilitates that relationship and provides the infrastructure for that lending relationships. And the lenders actually lend credit into a number of different liquidity pools that have you know, diversified assets and borrowers and the borrowers borrow out of those pools. Each pool is actually supervised by a pool delegate, you know, like a crypto hedge fund, for example, who does a lot of the kind of evaluation of credit risk and the KYC. So this whole structure enables the growth of these platforms through under collateralized lending. And there's obviously a lot of demand in this space. Uh, I got more comfortable with the risk environment because we're dealing with pretty sophisticated parties. You know, we're not dealing with somebody in his mom's basement trading altcoins, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I really believe in the business model, and I believe in crypto capital markets, because I think the current financial services capital market structure is extremely bloated and inefficient. And I, I keep using this example, but I really think of DeFi more generally, it's like trains. You know, why do trains still go the same speed they went 100 years ago? It's insane. You know, we haven't touched the speed of trains, at least in the United States. And that's because the current infrastructure exists. Uh, it's too costly to overhaul that infrastructure. You know, this is speculating. Haven't done a mm -hmm. lot of intense research on train transit. You can you can name you can name the ACH system. That's my uh, yeah. That, <laughs> that's my go to for the for the old tracks. That's a really good one, actually. Yeah, and you know, people are comfortable with trains. They like the Amtrak. Uh, you know, that's unacceptable. So this is a degree of innovation. And I think Maple's doing it in a really strategic, thoughtful way. Very subtle subtweet of President Biden there. Um, 
<laughs> I didn't even mean to shame him. That was inadvertent, actually, in all seriousness. I am a, not a political person. I take no stance. <laughs> Except the anti, that perhaps an anti-train stance. Okay, anti-trains. I don't want to touch politics <laughs> these days in the 10-foot pole. Ugh, ugly business. <laughs> Let me ask you what naturally, I'm sure everyone asks anyone talking about a crypto under collateralized lending protocol, as which you mentioned, the majority of the traditional, and by traditional, I mean from 2020, lenders in crypto, Compound, Aave, some of the other ones are over collateralized lending. You put in five Bitcoin and get back the equivalent of three Bitcoin to borrow. And the reason you do that is because you don't want to take a taxable event on your Bitcoin. So you want to borrow from it, you put up the collateral, and then you can go do some things with your Bitcoin. Now, you probably are doing that to go like buy more, <laughs> buy more stuff. And I said Bitcoin, but this is DeFi. So I should have been saying Ethereum the whole time. But this is under collateralized lending. So how do you get the money back? In the case of a default. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. It's under collateralized lending. So you cannot liquidate the the borrower if if the asset dropped precipitously, or they just kind of like abscond because they're anonymous behind a a, or pseudonymous or whatever it is behind a crypto wallet. So in the case of a default, how do you uh, recoup your funds? Yep. Well, very importantly, we KYC our borrowers. So mm-hmm. we're not dealing with some of the pseudo anonymity that DeFi deals with. Uh, we do have a degree of rigor that I wouldn't necessarily call it unique, but it prevents someone from completely absconding with the funds. As a recovering investigations lawyer who dealt closely with the government, I get like very upset whenever you, anyone uses the word anonymous in the context of <laughs> DeFi. Like, no, no anon employees, no anon counterparties, no mystery wallets. No, 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 no. The key here is, so one of the other aspects of our platform is you also have the Maple token and you can stake the token. And you basically, by staking the token, you get more rewards a higher degree of the yield, but you serve as the first tranche of credit risk. Mm-hmm. So you basically make up the delta if you if there were a default. And that is one of the you know functional and exciting aspects of the platform because you know it's potentially a risk, but the process is owned by really sophisticated crypto entities and potentially in the longer term TradFi entities. Uh, For example, we have one pool, it's an Alameda pool, obviously an entity that knows its stuff. So they're assessing the borrowers. They're obviously doing a fulsome evaluation of whether this borrower is going to be able to pay. Knock on wood, so far we have had zero defaults um, and zero late payments. Obviously that might not last forever. Who knows what's going to happen? But you do have the platform structure, which enables the money to be made up through the token holders who stake their tokens. Got it. And yes, so in, in those scenarios, when you're talking about you, a Mable token staker become being in the first tranche, 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 you are a lender to the protocol. You're, you're putting up funds. You're getting some amount of interest back, including that uh, staked token. And there are institutions on the other side. You mentioned Alameda Research, a prominent crypto quant trading 
fund uh, associated with mega billionaire Sam Bankman Freed. So you have these traditional, or <laughs> maybe traditional in my mind, you have these uh, institutional actors on the other side. And one, the fact that they're an institution probably keeps them from, again, absconding. Two, you have KYC on the other side, but certainly you want to expand this more and more. You mentioned expanding into TradFi. How does a borrower ultimately get approved by the protocol to borrow? Sure. So then the great part of this process is the approval or the assessment of the borrower is really left to the pool delegate. So each pool delegate effectively acts as kind of the I'm trying to think of the counterpart, the, you know, the, the loan officer or the mortgage banker at the at the bank, you know, they're the ones assessing the credit risk and running the background checks and doing the due diligence. So, you know, depending on how you look at this, from a certain regulatory perspective, we see ourselves more as a software developer who has created the software to facilitate this protocol. And less like, like we do not consider we are not lenders, you know, we are we are not intimately involved in the lending process, you know, we facilitate it absolutely. But this is also DeFi, you know, this all operates by smart contracts. We have just developed this protocol that enables this interaction to occur. You heard it here first, Gary Gensler and uh, associated <laughs> associated regulators around the country and the world. So you have, you know, you're a longtime investigator. You've certainly dealt with the SEC, the DOJ, any other number of multi-letter organizations. What is your main role here, at least initially coming in and being the GC of Maple Finance? I would say my main role is to develop our legal strategy. You know, we are growing very quickly. It's very exciting. Again, there's a, there's a great demand in this space. And I give so much credit to the co-founders of Maple for recognizing the need for a GC early on. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times, and most, pretty much all of my partners at KNS in my practice would agree with me when I say this, a lot of times we have observed issues with fast-growing companies where they're growing fast, they're making lots of money. It's hard to pause at that point and say, oh, we need to bring in a lawyer. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they don't they never we, do that you no know? <laughs> we need to bring in some policies and some procedures and all that fun stuff no no it's difficult to step back and say that um, and oftentimes that happens too late and then you have a mess to clean up whereas if you recognize the need for someone to guide legal strategy and clean house and make sure you have the best in class of whatever you're dealing with and, and your compliance infrastructures in place. And also, you know, to give the company an, adva an advantage, uh, we're all, we're, we're dealing with so many partners, the way that our platform is structured. You know, you have the bars, you have the pool delegates, you have the lenders, et cetera. And Maple wants to make sure that they have someone internally who is constantly communicating with counterparts at those entities, you know, you have a significant entity, they have a GC. Maple doesn't want to have to bring an outside counsel for every conversation with a lawyer at one of their partners. So yeah. I speak that language. I facilitate legal strategy, develop legal strategy. I keep my eyes on the regulatory environment, obviously, hyper aware of that these days. <laughs> Look for efficiencies 
look for ways to, you know, maximize our compliance and utility and move forward with commercially oriented solutions, but solutions that are thoughtful and careful and responsible and compliant. Like making sure you're positioned as a software, not a lender. You're, yep. you're, you're partnering lenders, you know, stakers, borrowers, all that, all that good stuff. Nope. We are not dealing in investment contracts. I actually feel very confident about that. That's something we're thinking about. Uh, that's something we're being very careful about. I have the utmost respect for the SEC and for the government as a whole. You know, I spent most of my career dealing with ex-regulators. They were mm. my partners. They were my friends. They're extremely smart, ethical individuals. My, my mentor at the firm, you know, is XDOJ. My mentor early on in the firm is our current FBI director, Chris Ray, who's kind of one of the best people I know. So I have the utmost respect for the regulators. And I believe they are doing what they think is best for the betterment of the economy and for retail investors. That being said, I was also very careful to consider a move. You know, I, I would never put myself in a position where there's gatekeeper liability. And mm -hmm. I certainly think there's really, really solid arguments to be made that are ways to facilitate the growth of this industry that will help the American economy and the average American and democratize finance and all those other lofty things. <laughs> well, very, very well put. I think we will spare the discussion of the Howie test on, on this episode, <laughs> but uh, I, I'll say very well said. I sounded like a, like a politician is what you just <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I liked it. I liked it. There is a lot. If you go on crypto Twitter, you won't hear the same diplomacy towards our regulators. And, and I, I do like generally agree with you, though. I, I definitely, you know, may personally disagree with a thing here or a thing there. I think, you know, the environment could would do well to be much more forward thinking and friendlier towards crypto than I, I think the current tactics seem to be, and that goes beyond just regulators, but to the White House, certain legislators, things like that. But again, that's the whole thing. What I want to know from you is how does Maple progress? What does it look like in three years in, in your mind? Well, first, I will just say I would rather be friends with Hester than Gary these days. So <laughs> I'm a thousand percent. Absolutely. Who invited Gary to the party? Like, you know? Hester RSVP, like, yes, I'm with you. I, I find it frustrating too. And I hope the U.S. doesn't miss the boat, honestly. I hope we don't miss the opportunity for, you know, hosting like a brain drain, which is the least yes. of our issues should the current aggressive regulatory environment continue. And it worries me. I, I think Maple down the line, we have a really ambitious growth plan that's also thoughtful. You know, we were just at our offsite in Miami, and I was incredibly impressed with, first, all of the other, all of my colleagues who are just kind of scary smart um, and the passion that people have for, for growing and supporting DeFi and being part of the community and growing our Maple community, our Maple DAO. But, you know, in, in the next few years, I think we are really going to establish Maple as the dominant institutional capital network for crypto. I think I said that a few minutes ago, but it's a goal and it's a very realistic goal and continue to develop the most robust, most versatile, intuitive, decentralized lending infrastructure because it has to be intuitive and it has to be robust and it has to be compliant 
to bridge the gap between DeFi and TradFi. And that is the next frontier of what we hope to achieve in you know, the next few years. Absolutely. I mean, that bridging that gap is, it, it's, I would say, inevitable. And I think there's like one aspect of it where it's kind of creating user experiences and consumer experiences um, to place over these new rails, which aren't necessarily the best on the experience front, but we already had the fintech wave that kind of overlaid the user experience of the old rails, those old train rails that you were talking about, and kind of now it can happen for these new crypto rails. But, and I think in situations like this, beyond just user experience, user utility, being able to replicate the concept of under collateralized lending that that crypto hasn't really truly captured just yet that maple and perhaps some other players are going after i think that utility is key for crypto to capture as well so I'm very pleased to see folks like yourself and and your your coworkers um really tackling that we have to get to our segments what's your hottest take this segment is called take town what's your hottest take on defi crypto Anything you have a like strongly held take on? Oh gosh, uh, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, I guess by hottest take, you mean like my opinion on something specifically? Yeah, yeah it's gotta be a take. My hottest take right now would be that DeFi is going to become more dominant sooner than we think. Okay. I think this learning curve even that we, even though we're seeing it everywhere right now, I think it's going to move very quickly. It's going to move a lot quicker than a lot of TradFi thinks it's going to move. Um, as someone who comes from kind of the old world to the new, you know, I often kind of consider myself the interpreter between TradFi and DeFi. I think that it's going to move a lot faster than we all think it's going to move. And that's one of the reasons it makes me so excited to be here. It's really interesting. I think that I really got into crypto in earnest in early 2020 and the DeFi summer happened very shortly after that. And it really seemed like DeFi was like a thing for crypto and DeFi has continued to, after that, you know, fell back a bit. DeFi has continued to innovate, move forward. There are brand new things. There are things that go too fast for me to even keep up with just anything happening in the world of Olympus Dow and, and, and things like that. But it's really interesting how NFTs have permeated and like launched past DeFi in the mainstream conversation. And I would say DeFi did not and has not mainstreamed in any significant way while, <laughs> while NFTs have thoroughly, you know, they've got Paris Hilton and Jimmy Fallon having awkward NFT board ape conversations. DeFi is, DeFi is still like coming along. It's 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 kind of like it seems like it's the thing that crypto people and crypto Twitter people pay the most attention to, and certainly that our regulators pay the most attention to. But NFTs are just over here like uh, eating everything. One hundred percent. It's it's kind of like building blocks. Like you need to understand crypto before you understand NFTs and you need to understand crypto and NFTs before you understand DeFi. And then you have to understand all of that before you even start grappling with DAOs. You know, like, <laughs> and I, it reminds me of all these interest rate cases I handled. You know, I, I 
was first dealing with market manipulation with the basic interest rate. Then it was FX. Then it was ISDFIX. And, you know, mm. I couldn't have dealt with ISDFIX if I hadn't done the interest rate work before that. Because if you would have just thrown me into ISDFIX manipulation, which is like swaps and swaptions and derivatives, my head would have exploded. So I think as people become more comfortable with things like NFTs, DeFi will become far less intimidating to them. And, you know, DeFi, there's a true potential interaction with TradFi. And it's not just leaving money on the table. It's, it's efficiency and it's access to the underbanked. And there's all these attributes that go well beyond kind of appreciating and, and profiting from trading on OpenSea. So I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of with you. I'm like, whoa, everyone has an NFT. <laughs> Uh, are you on crypto Twitter yet? And do you have an NFT uh, profile picture? <laughs> you know, what's funny is, so being part of the private sector, it's very difficult, maybe even kind of a poor choice to have any active public facing social. All my social right. is locked because with conflicts alone, you can't comment on anything because you don't know what, <laughs> right. who your firm could be representing. So I have actually had a Twitter for like 10 years. I have like 200 followers and I would tweet about things like what I ate for dinner and mm -hmm. what I saw on vacation. So I, I think it was today I created a new DeFi ah, Okay. I'm still contemplating whether I'm going to start tweeting, but I, yeah. it's, it's kind of amazing to think now I can tweet about this stuff, but I do not have my NFT profile picture yet, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. I like that. I like that you got Twitter in like, 2011 and you just yeah. like stuck with the 2011 style of tweeting which was uh great and probably safer you know harder to like get canceled or something from uh talking about what you what you ate unless you eat the wrong thing i have to figure out when my first tweet was <laughs> it, it was like a long i'm talking like 2010 i was an early oh, nice. nice. more just like that those historic tweets although very mild and unoffensive i double checked per the yeah. elon tweet of like Way to get fired, keep something, wait 10 years. I did a, I did a political scrub. Um, yeah. It's fine. It's, it's boring, but I'm like, do I want my new DeFi colleagues to like, <laughs> you know, read a tweet, home sweet New York to this little pig, hashtag piggle, which is the name of my dog. Hmm, maybe not. I like, you got to leave that up for posterity. That's gold. Uh, I've, I've. <laughs> I've gone back and checked my Twitter at least three times, like the full like 10 year scrub. Yep. And if, if you are a human who hasn't gone back to your social media, I, I honestly don't know what you're doing at, 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 at this point. I had a, one time I thought about applying for a job with the San Francisco Giants. I'm like a big baseball fan, but I'm a big Oakland athletics fan. And I, I really don't like the Giants and really never have. And I was like, oh, maybe I should go get this job. And I had to look back and delete like, 12 tweets about how much I hate the Giants. Um, I ended up not applying, but uh, anyway, scrub your tweets, people. And everything lives forever on the internet. I'm sure they can be recovered, <laughs> but you're not even safe from the Giants. Yeah. That's okay. That's yeah. okay. Uh, unless they get into crypto, we're, we're, we're probably good. Yeah. Okay, last thing. Life is a movie, final segment. I guess, first off, since you are an investigator and in the world of white collar, do you watch billions? So my husband is a portfolio manager at a hedge fund. <laughs> okay. So you guys have to watch Billions. So I actually hate <laughs> lawyer shows, but Billions is the one exception that I made. And I, I watched it only because I was like, 
this is kind of our life, you know, (laughs) I know so many people are XSCNY, you know? Yeah. And so we did watch it together. We watched the first few seasons. Um, I think parts of it are extremely well done and parts of it are ridiculous. Like I must've asked him 10 times, are you sure your fund, which is like a giant New York based hedge fund, are you sure about mm. your fund is an in-house psychologist that gets paid $80 <laughs> how, and somehow, how do you not? <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're having a bad day. Your book lost a bunch of money. Did you go talk to the psychologist and then you made a billion dollars the next day? Because that 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 plot annoyed me. That was ridiculous. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's were, how it works. I think yeah, it's how it works. <laughs> or that one scene where they were paying a penalty and he slid the check across the desk. I was like, that's not how it works. The money is wired, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe now they will uh, send it via USDC. Exactly. I, I think that is a perfect place to end it. Catherine Kirkpatrick, boss. What a boss. What an interview. Uh, I have to say, I really enjoyed myself. Thank you for joining. Everyone, thank you for listening. Catherine, where can people, I don't know, bug you, find you, reach out if they need to know more? LinkedIn, where I am actually, despite my legal name being Catherine Kirkpatrick, I am Catherine Kirkpatrick Boss, B-O-S on LinkedIn. So find me and message me and I am hyper aware of uh, security. So if I think you're a bot, I won't respond, but otherwise I will respond. <laughs> Bots need not apply. Everyone else shoot Catherine a message. Otherwise, do like Catherine. Do interesting work that you're interested in. Thanks everyone. <laughs>